Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How you feeling? Uh, trepidatious? Ooh, nice word. Uh, it's just, I, I, there are clear skies outside, but after last week's light issue, and by light, I, I mean power, um, it, it just... I'm, I I have a bit of nerves about it. Well, and listen, yeah. not to not to add to that, but dear listeners, I'll also have you know my internet is cut out twice. We we've already had a Zoom call drop. Who knows what's going to happen? Who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, it's going to be what it's going to be. Um, we still have no idea what caused the power to go out. It just made me laugh so hard to rewatch it and have to go. <laughs> oh, my power's going out. I'm sure it'll be fine. And we weren't. No. We absolutely weren't. We tried to set up a system of us doing this where I was in the dark. (laughs) But my internet just was not stable enough and it just didn't work out. And then, then uh, the power, people fixing the power thought, you know what we're going to do? We're going to wait until Christy is right in the middle of Eurovision. To, to do a planned power outage and not bring it back until halfway through a fucking Stanley Cup playoff game as though they like the two sides of my personality were very, very unhappy. In to that me, moment. my question is this. Yep. And I don't know the answer. But I'm curious about what the benefit is to doing a planned power outage during the some peak hours in the day, and maybe doing it at night. 
call me crazy. Call me crazy, but they could warn you ahead of time. Hey, there's going to be a power outage from 2 to 4 a.m. Make sure your phones are charged. Sure. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That feels nice. I don't know. Like, why does it yeah. have to be in, like, peak hours? Is it because it needs to be peak hours? I don't understand how the power plants work. Oh, I don't either. I mean, they did warn us that day, like, oh, hey, heads up. It's going to be out from 2.30 to 4.30. Or it could be. It wasn't an, for sure. It was. It could be out, and I got until four fifteen, and then the power went out, and I was like, "That's okay. It'll be back in like fifteen minutes, right?" No, because between then they changed the time and pushed it to from four to six. Mm. And bless my internet, it it hung on just a little while after. Um, the power went out and then my internet died as soon as Eurovision was down to three countries that they were telling me the points from and I wanted to die <laughs> in that moment. It was literally just like a, okay, and we're down to the, the top three and I was like, and then my internet went. And I, I just, it was, it was a struggle and things ha like had to get MacGyvered uh, to get me to be able to watch the rest of it. But uh, well, I, Officer I, Bean is on the case over here. Just <laughs> oh my God! Can we get her a little cop outfit? Oh God, she'd be adorable. She'd with a little be adorable. with a little badge. Yeah. Maybe it's shaped like a paw print. Oh, Paw Patrol! Yes. Oh, come thank on. you. Stand down. Thank you. She really shone on the the last episode because we were recording the second half, the post-power outage, in the day. Yes. And that's when I've realized that most of my day is spent with her running to the door and uh, and just being a little busybody, as I like to call her. Of course. Really being nosy. Nosy. Thank you. <laughs> and then she just walks back. She goes back to the couch. Um, anyway, it is dark here now. We've waited long enough, but... Uh, that's when her barks get terrifying for me because she can hear anything a mile away. And uh, sure. then I start to, I start to start to worry, you know, what's going on out there. When she hears something that you don't. Yeah. There was one day she started panicking, like, and by much, I shouldn't say panicking, started going crazy is a better <laughs> explanation for it. Uh, and then wanted to go out the back door and she's barking like crazy. I'm like, what's going on? And she bolted around the side of my house where she had never gone before. And so I'm chasing after her going like, what is going on? The meter reader was here. He was on the other side of the fence. He, was, he, he wasn't in my yard. He was on the other side oh. in like the front of my house. And I was like, well, listen, what a little guard dog. Nothing's getting past her. But then it's also just terrifying when, you know, she runs sure. to the door losing her mind because then you're like, what's on the other side of the door right now? If you could get some sort of translator that you could be like, give, like, tell, you tell me what you are, like, what's the situation? I should get her one of those vocal pads. You've seen these, right? With all the buttons? <laughs> yes, and I absolutely want to witness you training her to use them. <laughs> Will you have one of the buttons say bitch? Oh. Because I've seen those where the they turn, where the dog asks for, like, the park or outside or a treat and the person says no and then the dog goes and hits the button that's like bitch <laughs> like that 
cracks me up every time. I mean, I should at least try it. I feel like she's young enough and she's like wants to please enough. It might work. Fox is absolutely not interested. Like he's. Oh, no, this is beyond like he's. He's basically. He would would only hit the bitch button. (laughs) And it would be at (laughs) random times. Like it would be now. Bitch. Yeah, the other room. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like she's having a good time in there, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, this yeah. checks out. I mean, just think it would. The joke will be: you'll get this thing, you'll have it, you'll completely forget about it when we go to do a record. Yep, and then you'll just hear different <laughs> buttons going. I mean, yeah. I wonder how long it takes. To train one of them on that. And oh, yeah. I don't think I would ever have the ambition to do, because some of them have those giant. Huge ones, yes. And I don't think that I I have that. But I think maybe a few. I think maybe a few. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> you'll love this. My youngest is going to turn eight this year. I've done all the teaching I'm going to do. I'm tired. <laughs> I get that. I don't think I have. I mean, who knows? Someday when I'm an empty nester, I might get into, I might be like, I'm going to get a dog and I'm going to teach it how to use these buttons. And then you're going to come to my home and I will have replaced the floor in one room to make it like the dog's communication room. And it'll just be like an entire sea of, I'll have a little Shakespeare. It'll be cute. That's cute. Do you remember the sitcom Empty Nest? With Richard Mulligan. Oh my God, of course I do. I loved that show. Yes! Blanche <laughs> hit on him multiple times. Really? He lived, he, he, was, uh, he was the doctor that would sometimes go to their house. Right. And then I think maybe Blanche and Rose, I think it was only two of them, were on a couple of episodes. But they had Dreyfus. And then uh, Char- was it, it's Charlie, was he the horn dog? I don't remember. <laughs> uh, he was basically the Blanche for that show. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah. Oh, I, I, was a, I was a fan. I was a fan. Every time I hear the term Empty Nest, I think of the show Empty Nest is my point. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And one of the sisters one, or one of his daughters uh, was a cop, right? I think so, Yes. And then one, uh, the other one was a redhead, but I don't remember what she did. Yeah, she I don't know. She's kind of very pouty, whiny, sort of called him daddy or something all the time when she didn't get her way. Yeah, look, I wasn't a fan of that. And I bet if I watched it now, I'd be like, huh, all right. Yeah. But there is a small part of me that's like, would I do a rewatch? Maybe. Maybe. At least a couple. Yeah. See yeah. what it's like. Be like, I, wow, I was re- Charlie Dietz. It there was it is. Absolutely Charlie Dietz. Thank yeah, you very he much. Was the, he was the horn dog. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of horn dogs, I saw a photo posted today on some account. I I didn't I don't follow this account, but you know how Instagram now it shows you f- accounts you don't follow, yep. which I I have some notes for all the social media peoples cuz they're doing this on on basically I think all of the platforms or certainly on yeah. um Instagram and TikTok, or sorry, Instagram and Twitter. If I want to see the accounts of people I don't follow, that's TikTok. They own it. 
They've got it down. That's all I care about. Sure. I follow very few accounts on there because I just like seeing, I like seeing the content from all kinds like of different people. I like the variety. But when yeah. I go to my Instagram, when I go to my Twitter, I want to see the people that I follow and that's it. Yep. Regardless. An account came up for me on Instagram I, I don't follow. Um, and it was a picture of David Duchovny in his prime that I had oh. never seen before. That's rare. And it was the cover of Playgirl magazine. How did we never know that? <laughs> oh, this feels like something you had to know. I had no idea. And I, wow. I fumbled my phone as I was frantically Googling David Duchovny Playgirl. The first thing that comes up is an eBay link to a copy of it. And I was like, when do does I it arrive? <laughs> I know. I was like, do I just hit order? And then I was like, no, hold on. Look for some more information. Anyway, long story short, what I've come to learn is he did not appear nude. So you didn't place order. No. <laughs> this moment where I was like I don't know if I really want to see that anyway like I I don't know like I don't think that would I don't know if that would do no. anything for me really you know what I mean I it felt like it's I don't know but then it made me think yeah. and I was like but when and I don't know the answer to this but when celebrity females go on used to go in playboy did they yeah. have the option of not going full nude oh I doubt it I mean, I mean, he was very covered in this too. It wasn't like he was just like covering with a with a teacup. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> that image we've seen, yes, <laughs> that yeah. has burned in my brain from my youth. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, then it's just like <laughs> you'll love this statement. Well, if he's clothed, what's the point? Well, it was interesting. Not, I mean, Why listen, listen, not to, not to, and look, it was the 90s. I guess more than anything, I was shocked that in the 90s, they weren't like, you're going to at least have to take off your shirt. You know what I mean? I'm not yeah. saying that's right. I'm just saying I was surprised. I mean, it was a different time. Different time. Different wow. time. Yeah. Playgirl. Yeah. Huh. I just didn't realize that they were doing like spreads of men in Playgirl fully clothed. I did not know that. And then I'm also like, because at first I, w I was thinking to myself, like, that was the height of his fame. 97, that was the height of his fame. He did Playgirl? But then I guess maybe if if the offer was to remain clothed, it wasn't that big a deal. I guess. To which I'm just like, how many issues did you sell where they, the purchaser thought they were getting the goods? A lot. And then opened it and went, Pants! You know? <laughs> yeah. I think there was quite a few people who purchased this who would have never been more angry at Pants and the Pants Corporation. Wow. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Huh. I mean, I'm going to be honest. I don't know if I've ever really thought about Playgirl. I Like, in not. general. Like, I just don't think about it. I just, and I'm gonna, this is going to shock the world. Not interested. Yeah. No, yeah, I actually feel the same way. I, I don't know. I don't know that I need that in my life is my point. Like, yeah. I'm good. Um, yeah. Uh, there's something also, you know, fun about leaving some of the imagination, all of the above. I just yeah. did a quick Google. Just did a quick Google mm -hmm. out of curiosity. Of course. What celebrities have posed in Playgirl? Please. 
top of the list. A uh, Mr. Patrick Brad Swayze. Brad Pitt, ninety seven. Oh, also, I'm telling you, the, I bet you he wasn't nude either. I think that they started a new business model in the in, in the late nineties. It's sounding to me. Don't you think? I, oh, I also love that my guess was Patrick Swayze. <laughs> I love that you were also so certain of it. Um, <laughs> nothing, can I just? Nothing was going to convince me otherwise. Brad Pitt makes sense to me, though. I totally, but I bet you again he wasn't nude because this was around the sure. exact same time as Duchovny. It feels to me like at that point they were like, I'll go out to some real famous ones and see if they'll come on. But this is a name I was not expecting to see on this list. In 2001, okay? Okay. Keith Urban. Wow. Not expecting that. Young. Young. Like he was young. Jesus. Oh, I found a photo. Oh, he's cradling a guitar. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> Here's a name. Here's a name you'll like to hear. Yeah. Scott Bakula. Oh. 95. Wow. 95. I always I always loved Sam Beckett. Oh, absolutely. The list is you know? is pretty short, to be honest with you. I'm not seeing a ton. Um, again, David Duchovny is coming up a lot. Antonio Sabato Jr., that's not a surprise. Oh, he dropped his pants for many a campaign. Many a campaign. <laughs> <laughs> uh, here's one from the 70s. John Travolta. That checks. Yep. I was going to say Burt Reynolds. Burt Reynolds also, yes. That checks. Yep. Um, so is Playgirl still a thing? Or have they since? Great question. Is Playgirl still a thing? (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't be happier about this live action Googling. Can you imagine if this was our show where it was like, what's the topic? We're going to off and on change which one of us is going to Google about it live in real time. Well, listen, apparently in 2016, uh, it was the last episode. Last episode, last issue. Wow. Um, wait a second. What is this? There was a relaunch. Was it missed? There was a relaunch. Let me see. Oh God, listen. I'm gonna have to do more research into this, but I think there was a relaunch more recently, and it was it's taken on a uh, like a feminist turn. Hey, interesting. The cover, for example, was a pregnant Chloe Sevigny in this most, in 2020. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I'm going to have to look into this more. This is fascinating. Well, you'll love this. (laughs) Playgirl podcast. (laughs) We each (laughs) go through an issue and then just talk about it. I feel like there would be a real market for that. Yeah. A real market for that. Brad Pitt full frontally nude. I love that I'm instantly scared. <laughs> <laughs> he so he sued Playgirl. Okay, listen, there's just too much. We we could do a whole episode about this. This is gonna have to this is gonna have to become something else because I need to know the truth. Yes. Interesting. Uh <laughs> oh, it may have been a paparazzi shot. That's not great. 
That's dirty. That's bad. That'll be our biggest episode. (laughs) Well, the fact that there was a Vanity Fair article in 2017 and the headline was, The Nude Photos That Explain Why Brad Pitt Doesn't Impress Shania Twain Much. That feels rude. Maybe it was called out. What's that? Maybe it was called out. Well, listen, again, I just feel like... That's harsh. Maybe he just wasn't ready. Also, by the way, like, not indicative. Come on. Oh, yeah, you can't. There is, like, unprepared and prepared. (laughs) Like, there is (laughs) a large difference between those two things. Yeah. Sometimes Sometimes not so large. But sometimes the large difference is almost troubling. Like, it feels like it defines gravity and science. Yes. Yeah. I think we've made our listeners comfortable. I think everybody's into it. Um, Relatable content. Could have been worse. We could have started dropping words like girthy. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God we didn't. We kept it pretty PG-13, I thought. I thought we were, you know. Oh, wow. I would have even given us uh, probably just a PG. Oh, in this day and age, you're probably right. I mean, the stuff that the younger ones see, it's horrifying. But, uh, I mean, look, as someone who grew up on Grease 2 and Mannequin, nothing, (laughs) nothing uh, phases me unless you say Brad Pitt full frontal (laughs) and then I clutch my pearls because I wasn't ready. I I wasn't ready. Yeah, I wasn't ready. Uh, no, I don't okay. like if it's paparazzi shots and stuff like that. I don't feel right looking at them. It's it's like it's no. a violation. It, it, they didn't intend it. Sure. Now, if he had uh, agreed and put it out there and was proud of it, would I look it up? Oh, Possibly. it would be tasteful. Yeah, if it was a tasteful nude that he had full agency about and consented to, that's a different thing. Okay, him leaning. <laughs> On some sort of beanbag chair types thing, knee up, the other the other knee bent and on the ground, just eating a bowl of mac and cheese. Hell I yes! Don't know why? Hell yes! I also Again, Brad tasteful. I also just have to say, you know, yeah. as a as a gal who's on the dating scene, sure. Um, quite often, if I'm uh, you know going out with someone new early on date or two, they will yeah. say to me, inevitably, by by date two, I listen to an episode of your podcast, always. Oh. And I immediately always go, oh yeah, which one? And then they'll say, and then I'll try to rack my brain. <laughs> what, about, we thought, like, what we talked about at the beginning? Yep. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's no way to know. No. There's no way to know. Uh, but anyway, this might be an episode I'll tell them to skip. <laughs> <laughs> Tell them who are they? There isn't any. Put it you in know. your bio if you're gonna listen. <laughs> skip this episode. Yeah, that'll work. That'll yeah. work. Oh my god. Yeah. I mean, look, if we have the time, yeah, we don't. Uh, we could go through and do like just a skim to the beginning of each episode and just make notes for ourselves, and then you'd have like a little black book that you could just. What episode did you listen to? And then you just to that episode and then you know approximately what they listen to 
or what they heard. Yeah, good point. We should have <clears throat> kept <laughs> this the words I'm about to say. We should have kept ledgers. <laughs> Where mm -hmm. it said what we talked about in the beginning. Why? Why? We don't need that. I guess for we this. We used to, though. I used to. I never knew that. I did. Back when um, we were first starting and we used to think of what story we were going to talk about in advance that might kind of link to the right. story we were talking about. Yeah. So I had like a like a spreadsheet, of course. Um where I would have like the episode, the story we talked about so that we wouldn't double up. And now we're just like, have we told this? Either way. So anyhow. Um, that was before they would, knew uh, us. That was before they knew us. Yeah. And yeah. then it would just be like approximate things we talked about. But then it's, the, that became time consuming. So that went out the door pretty quickly. Yeah. As yeah. did choosing a story. Yeah. In advance. Because well, I don't think they need to be told. We did not go, you want to talk about Playgirl today? Done. <laughs> Hit record. Like, Shocker, this wasn't you know, on the docket. Um, yeah, no, but they know us now. You know what I mean? Everyone yeah. knows us now. So now it's more like, I think it's more conversational and, and chit-chatty as opposed to like, who are these women? You know? Sure. Yeah. And who are these women? Brad Pitt full nude. Uh, like, <laughs> oh, I, I, yeah, I almost just like left the room. I didn't know. Mentally, I think I did. Yeah. Because I got, I got frightened. <laughs> I got frightened. <laughs> it was like Groundhog Day. Are we getting more, more winter or spring? Yeah. I was frightened. I well, was just, and like I've recently quoted to you yeah. from hit major motion picture Clue. I can't take any more scares. That was in reference to me seeing some clickbait that was about Zendaya and Tom Holland breaking up. And I flew into a panic. And then when I Googled it, it did not seem to be true. And I was voice noting this to Christy. And then I said, to quote the immortal words of Martin Mullen Clue, I can't take any more scares. And that's the truth. Like, it, we don't need to talk about it. We don't have time. But like, the, I pray they don't break up. Normally, we've talked about it before. Yep. You're in your early 20s. We're like, try on some different relationships. Don't feel like you have to settle. You know, that's kind yep. of, I feel like a, some good advice. With those yep. two, I want them together for life. And I don't you found your why. person. You <laughs> are where you need to be. Yes. Yeah. There's nothing else out here. Trust me. There's nothing else out here. There's look, a couple of, couple of yahoos to listening to our episodes of our podcast, but you know what I'm saying? It's rough. Yeah. It's rough. And look. I, whatever I can do to, uh, I mean, we'll, we'll become like secret service, but just for you two. Oh, yeah. To keep the cameras away. <laughs> keep the busybodies out. We'll do that for you. Yep. To keep you together. Yep. Are you someday going to have kids? I can be your nanny. Can I? I just said I was done. You were done, done teaching. teaching, yeah. But apparently I'm not. Look, I'll do what you need to do. Just, just please stay together. Just, just, I guess my plea to Zendaya and Tom Holland is, if things yeah. get tough, try to work it out. Because there's two 40-something-year-old <laughs> Canadian broads that are really inspired by your love. Yes. If I may add, 
talk to us. Yep. Talk to us about it first. If you're thinking yep. of pulling the plug, yep. talk to us about it. If you want, we can do a, a, a four Zoom, <laughs> a, the four of us. If you want, we'll each take one of you and just have a chat. Yep. Open and your I'm gonna, heart. It's the only time in my life that I would be the bad cop, and that would be because I would be trying to scare them straight based on my dating stories. <laughs> okay, so if it's a four Zoom, I'm good cop. You're good cop in this scenario, yeah. Okay. I am quick to cry. Will that help? <laughs> <laughs> and I'll mother them. I'll mother them yep. both. And I'll be like, I don't like to see this for you. Yep. No. And then it's I'll just, just- you are so happy. I'll, I'll start by, by, by holding up an iPad case in silence. <laughs> and no one will know what's going on. I'll be like, you see what this is? You know what this is? It's an iPad case. Sure. The other thing that it is is the Valentine's Day gift I got given three weeks after Valentine's Day once from a committed long-term boyfriend who didn't bother to get me anything for Valentine's Day. And then when I communicated that I was a little disappointed that he didn't get me a gift when I had gotten him a gift and given it to him on Valentine's Day, he gave me an iPad case. And the real kicker is I did not own an iPad. And then do I come out of – out of? because at this point I'm no longer in frame now that I've realized what you're doing because of assuming we're doing this via Zoom. Yeah. Uh, and I come into frame and go, oh, what's this? This is dish soap. <laughs> My fiancé who I was living with at the time gave me dish soap for Valentine's Day. And why? Quote, I wanted to get you something – you would use. <laughs> if at that point they're still talking a split, I don't even know what we do. I don't no. even know. No. I just, I mean, look, I'll sign NDAs. I sure. won't tell a soul. No. Nope. I won't tell a soul. Nope. I won't even tell her and she'll be there. Yep. But look, I'll sign whatever I need to sign. Yep. You can be as open with us as you want. Yep. What happened there? What's going on? I'm going to turn into a car salesman where I'm yep. like, what's it going to take for me to get you back in that relationship? <laughs> <laughs> you know, what do I got to do? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's bleak out there, kids. And we, you are the joy and the light. Oh, I'm just seeing you two together. It's just so pure. Yeah. It's just a pure love. It is. Listen, speaking of pure loves, what are you drinking over there? Well, I'm going to shock you. Huh. This might be a first. What? I've got a water. Uh-huh. I've got, I can't call it a Slurpee because it's not. I've got a Pepsi slush. Oh. Because uh, I was too lazy to go all the way to 7-Eleven. And I have a third beverage, a Mike's Lime. Wow. What I love is that you're really taking a page from my book because all I have yeah. is a water and a pineapple high noon. Okay. So you went two drinks this week. I went three drinks. Well, before we started, I'd already killed a high noon, but that doesn't count. <laughs> it's not three different drinks. So sure. yes. 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 Um, listen, I'd love to see that for you. Love to see yeah, that Yeah, look, I just decided uh, I, was, I, I knew I was going to do a Mike's Lime today. And then I always have a water as a backup. But I, I didn't have a Slurpee today. And I was falling asleep at 4.30 this afternoon. And I was like, I'm going to need, I'm going to need a real, 
caffeine kick. Yeah. So I decided I'm going to put, uh, I decided I'm going to go sugar, sugar, and water for my beverage options, really. Right. Um, <clears throat> well, listen, before we get into it, very yeah. quickly, I just wanted to give a quick update to last week's episode. Now, yeah. dear listeners, if you listen to last week's episode or you follow us on the socials, you may already know this, but of course I am releasing a single. And yeah. Last yeah, week, you are. I was waxing poetic about the fact that I was terrified that I had messed up the song release because it was supposed to go on pre-sale uh, tomorrow. Yeah. And I was worried that it wasn't going to show up. Well, here's the real joy in my life. It popped up a day early. It popped hey. up a damn day early. What are the chances? What a gift to me. Um, so I'm so excited to say you can go on to iTunes and you can purchase a pre-sale of that song. And that is the way to help me try and chart. As we know, that has become my goal, is to try and get on a billboard chart. Um, if you don't have iTunes or access to it, June 2nd will be the day. And that's the day we need to flood it. That's the day we flood it. And sure. all the Spotify's and the people on the Amazons and whatnots, that's the big day. Um, you know, I don't think I should tell people. If you're leaving the house, put it on repeat before you leave the house. I don't think I should be telling people to do that. I think that's probably illegal. Sure. Um, but if people come up with their own ideas, I, I can't stop them. It's not my business sure. what people do in the privacy of their own homes when they leave those homes. I don't know. <laughs> the only business we're going to know about is Tom Holland and Zendaya. Thank you very much. Well, and the business yeah. of my new merch store, which is, of course, supporting the album. Or not the album, the single. Yeah, I've uh, I've made some merch items. To support my song, uh, mm -hmm. it's not live mm -hmm. yet. It'll go live June 2nd alongside when the single goes live. And that's going to be laurenash.band. Laurenash.band. Look at you. Yeah. Who saw this coming back in the day when we had to pre-pick our story? Thank you very much. What a gift to us. And I support. I will also just want to give a shout out everyone who is already... Um, pre-purchase the single, uh, truly, genuinely humbling experience. It's been so lovely to see people be so supportive of me living out what has been a ridiculous teenage fantasy. Uh, but, but also it's just, it's so lovely that people have been so supportive. So I want to say thank you to everyone, uh, who has and who will, uh, purchase that single. I appreciate you. Um, but listen, we got lots to talk about. Oh yeah. <laughs> because I think I can say right off the get- we're talking about Alex Murdoch. We are. And this is the first in an installment. Correct. Of two episodes about Alex Murdoch. Because for those of you, dear listeners, who aren't familiar with this case, um, who, who are familiar with this case, they all just went, of course, of course. For those who yeah. aren't familiar, it's a lot to get through. There is so many twists and turns that this take case takes that it's not, it's, uh, it's not going to be done in one episode. So buckle no. in. For that, let's get into it. Alex Murdoch is a member of one of the most powerful and influential family. Influential. Doing Back to right. ones. <laughs> Alex Murdoch is a member of one of the most powerful and influential families in South Carolina. Members of the family have held the role of district attorney for nearly 90 years. So it was shocking when Alex discovered that two members of his family had been shot to death at their home. But who would want them dead? And are their deaths connected to the family's long legal history in the county? 
Over the next two episodes, we will go deep into the Murdoch family, looking into various scandals and controversies that the family has tried to keep hidden, including the five deaths that occurred within just six years. So what deaths are connected to the Murdoch family? And what other secrets might they be hiding? Well, I'll tell you this. Christy Oxborough investigates. <laughs> I want to tell you, I have already written the synopsis for the beginning of the second part because I wanted to do them together so I could try it because as I was trying to figure out where I was drawing the line for this episode versus that. And I, I took a turn writing that one and I think I'm just going to leave it. I can't it wait. Go. So it is what it is. So disclaimer, as always, this episode will contain mentions of suicide intimate partner violence, and substance abuse, so trigger warning for those who need it. And right out the gate, I have to talk about pronunciation. Yeah. Because I have heard this name pronounced different ways. Based on the spelling of the name, my instinct is to say Murdaugh. But after hearing Alex say his own name, I am going with how he says it, which is Murdoch. I know that friend of the podcast, Ben Feldman, had complaints about a an unnamed documentary that pronounced the name wrong. So I hope he will be happy to hear ours will at least be consistent. It was inconsistent was the thing, is that in that specific documentary that will remain nameless, there was just lots of yes. different ones. And he, was, he just sent a message saying, if you cover this, just be consistent, which I think was a great note. <laughs> it was. And that was the moment I said to you, he still listens. Oh, good for him. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So, also, my apologies to any fans of the delightful TV series Arrested Development, as I will be saying the name Buster a lot, and people uh, might, like, kind of, the, the Buster I'm talking about does not match the one that you're picturing, if you're a fan of that show. Uh, but shout out to the best Buster there is, Mr. Tony Hale. Oh, I love him. I love him. The best. So, so now that we got that bit of business out of the way. At 10.06 p.m. on June 7th, 2021, a 911 operator received a call from Islandton, South Carolina. The caller said, quote, this is Alex Murdoch. My wife and child have been shot badly. When first responders arrived on scene at 4147 Moselle Road, they discovered the bodies of Alex's wife, Maggie, and the couple's youngest son, Paul. Maggie was found face down outside the dog kennels on the property. She had been shot five times with an AR-15 rifle. Paul, who was found just outside a small feed room at the kennels, was shot multiple times at close range with a shotgun. Both victims were pronounced dead at the scene. Maggie was 52 years old, and Paul was just 22. Alex told police that he woke from a nap around 7.30 p.m., but he didn't see Maggie or Paul. He texted them both around 8.05 p.m. to say he was going to check on his parents. His father, Randolph, who was bat battling cancer, had recently taken a turn for the worse, and his mother, Libby, suffered from late-stage Alzheimer's. Mm. Alex said that he was at their house at 9.15 p.m. Alex arrived back at his Moselle property at 10 just after 10, when he discovered the bodies of his wife and son, so he called 911. 
When Alex was first questioned by police, he was quick to point out that his son Paul had been in a boat accident two years prior and that there had been, quote, a lot of negative publicity about that and there's been a lot of people online just really vile stuff. When Alex's other son, Buster, first heard the news of his mother's and brother's deaths, he said, quote, it was premeditated and revenge for the 2019 boat crash. So what was this boat crash? Who are the Murdochs and what other deaths have been linked to the family? Well, we are going to start by looking at the Murdoch family. And fair warning, this gets confusing because so many people in this family have the same name. So I'm going to go by their nicknames to try and make it easier. But just when I thought that was the answer, then they gave two separate people in the family the same nickname. And I nearly imploded uh, trying to keep it all straight. I had to print off a like I had to get a family tree and have it printed out at all times while I was doing notes so I could keep everybody straight because sometimes it got... To be clear, dear listeners, she's saying she had to get a family tree. No, no, she created her own family tree. This is like the one that I did in the Army Hammer episode, by the way, because that's also a very tough family tree to be able to figure out. Uh, But anyway, I've printed it for my own reference. I like that. And you're going to need it. Yep. But I will say this, not to brag, but I did use a ruler. Great I thought about doing different, like, colors for it, but then I was like, no, no, just stick to it. Uh, God, it's, hopefully it helps. It's, it's beautiful. Oh, God, we're going to do our best. So, Josiah Murdoch Jr. made his fortune in commercial fertilizer and phosphate mining before getting into real estate development. When he was 36, Josiah married Ann Davis, who was 19 at the time. From the best I can tell, um, the couple had one daughter and six sons between 1868 and 1887. Again, she was 19, he was 36. But, you know, different times. Um, I'm not going to get into the names of their potentially seven children because that's just going to add to the confusion. But their youngest was Randolph Murdoch Sr., who was born February 28th, 1887. After graduating from the University of South Carolina School of Law, Randolph Sr. founded his own law firm in 1910 in Hampton, South Carolina. In March 1914, Randolph married Etta Harvey, and the couple had two sons, Randolph Jr., known as Buster Sr., on January 15, 1915, and John Glenn, known as Johnny, on August 27, 1918. To be clear... He wa- they the family tended to call him Old Buster, but I felt weird calling him Old Buster as he's not someone I know. So I've chosen to go with Buster Senior, and then later on Buster Junior for the other Buster in this tale because this just never stops. So the this very day after John was born, Etta became ill and died from sepsis a few weeks later on September fifteenth. She oh, was wow. just twenty nine at the time. Two years later, Randolph Sr. was elected to the position of solicitor uh, in the 14th Judicial Circuit, which is essentially like the district attorney. Uh, He would remain in that position until his death 20 years later. He was also a Freemason, which I only mention because I find Freemasons fascinating, mainly because of the Nicolas Cage movie National Treasure. Of course. 
Uh, on July 19, 1940, Randolph Sr. left a friend's poker game around 1 a.m. when his car stalled at a railroad crossing just four miles or 6.4 kilometers east of Varnville. A westbound freight train came along and the engineer said he didn't see Randolph Sr.'s car until the train was about 40 yards away. The engineer also claimed that Randolph Sr. waved at him before driving his car onto the tracks. I have seen reports that claim the car stalled on the tracks, but I've also seen reports that claim the car stopped before the tracks and then drove onto the tracks just as the train approached. So I can't confirm which is the accurate story, but sadly, Randolph Sr.'s car was struck by a train and he was killed instantly. He was 53 years old. According to the Hampton County Guardian, quote, the impact hurled the automobile approximately 900 feet up the track. Murdoch's body was found beside the track approximately 150 feet from the crossing. Some have suggested that alcohol may have been involved or that Randolph Sr. purposely took his own life. Maybe it was a combination of the two. The event did happen on what would have been his wife's 51st birthday. Mm. So I don't know if the date was something possibly feeling nostalgic. One thing led to another. I don't know. But he was 53, right? Right. But wasn't she a lot younger than him? Uh, That was the first thing. My bad. Yep. Thank you. No, again, so sorry. No. So many people. I've already gotten confused by the family members. So you're doing great work. I thought I might throw you by putting by talking about people who didn't make the family tree, like people I didn't put on there. But I was like, I, I don't have room. I have chunky writing. I don't have room. No, no, it's not you. It's in my attempt to be so focused. Mm-hmm. This is the problem with my brain. Sometimes it just doesn't always work, but I'm doing my best. No, you're doing great. So some have suggested that it Randolph Sr.'s accident was made to look like an accident to get Randolph Sr. out of Buster Sr.'s way. Oh. Not only did Buster Sr. benefit financially from his father's death, he also then was elected solicitor by a landslide. Wow. That family was powerful even at that point. Um, I'm not saying that Buster Sr. had something to do with his father's death. Um, I will just say... A former colleague of Buster Sr.'s described Buster as, quote, If Buster Murdoch liked you, he'd try and help you any way he could. If Buster didn't like you, he'd try to hurt you any way he could. Allegedly. Mm. I'm going to throw a lot of those in there because his family's lawyers. Yep. You know, just in case. Just in case. So. A potential example of that side note. Yes. I'll talk more about this particular woman later, but in 1976, an obituary was placed in the state newspaper claiming that Buster Sr.'s daughter-in-law, Libby, had died. The details of Libby's life were so personal and accurate that it was obvious that only someone close to her could have written it. Libby, of course, was not dead, And in fact, as of this record on May 18th, 2023, Libby is still alive. So some claim that Libby submitted the obituary herself to get back at her husband for something that he did. 
but others claim that Buster Sr. had the obituary published to send Libby a message. Wow. We don't know who got it published, but if Buster Sr. did do it, that is a dark way to threaten your daughter-in-law. Yeah. Prior to his death, Randolph Sr. was often too sick to go to court, so Buster Sr. would fill in for him. So maybe the ongoing illness was part of the reason his car went onto those tracks. Maybe the car was placed on the tracks. We'll never know. But in the end, Randolph Sr.'s death was ruled an accident. Months later, in October 1940, Buster Sr. filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the train company, claiming the train was traveling at a high speed and that it had failed to blow a whistle to signal that it was coming to the crossing. The suit also claimed the crossing itself was overgrown and that Randolph Sr.'s view would have been obscured by trees and tall underbrush. The suit was later settled for an undisclosed amount. Buster continued to run the law firm that his father started back in 1910. It would later become known as, and I don't know how I'm supposed to say this, PMPED, which to me just looks like the word pimped, and I can't see anything else, but it stands for Peters, Murdoch, Parker, Eltsroth, and Dietrich. The law firm became a huge family dynasty, with the name Murdoch being one of the most recognized legal names in South Carolina. The family even made the cover of an issue of Carolina Lawyer magazine in 1989. Hmm. And the firm's website boasted that the Murdochs held the position of solicitor for 87 consecutive years. But it wasn't exactly consecutive. Buster Sr., resigned his position of solicitor in June 1956 when he was indicted by a federal grand jury for allegedly warning a bootlegger to move a moonshine still into a neighboring county to avoid arrest. A former county sheriff, as well as more than two dozen co-defendants, were also indicted for, quote, having conspired over a period of several years to violate the Internal Revenue liquor laws. Before the trial even started, some witnesses were threatened. Others had people attempt to bribe them. Some also tried to influence or intimidate one of the attorneys in the case. And one of Buster Sr.'s first cousins was later charged with jury tampering. On September 17th, the two-week trial started with for the 23 defendants. And from what I've read, the trial was pure chaos One witness admitted to lying in court, and according to a police bulletin released about the trial, quote, the defense resorted to some highly questionable tactics, all apparently designed to bring about an acquittal or mistrial as to Solicitor Murdoch, even at the risk of sacrificing the remaining defendants. The foreman of the jury had gone to school with Buster Sr.'s brother, Johnny. And he even went to dinner with Johnny shortly before the trial began. So it's clearly a conflict of interest. But what I find super suspicious is that just before the jury was sent to deliberate, the foreman received a phone call that his father was dying. And despite there being an alternate foreman ready to take his place, the foreman declined and joined the rest of the jury for deliberations anyway. 
In the end, five of the 23 defendants were acquitted, including Buster Sr. The sheriff, along with the 17 other defendants, were found guilty and sentenced to seven years in prison. On January 1, 1957, Buster Sr. resumed his role as solicitor. But that's not where Buster Sr.'s questionable law practices ends. At various points throughout his career, he was allegedly reprimanded by the South Carolina Supreme Court for inappropriate closing arguments in death penalty cases. Like the time he was trying a rape case, and in his closing arguments, he threatened to release other rapists into the community if the defendant was acquitted? (laughs) Whoa! (laughs) No, that feels, uh, you know, but that's just the kind of crap that a rich old white man can say publicly and just have people say things like, oh, you know Buster. He's a real character. (laughs) Uh, Whatever they do, just get swept under the rug. Buster Sr. remained the solicitor until his retirement in 1986. A bit about his personal life, Buster Sr. married Gladys Marvin in January 1937, and the couple had one child, Randolph III, on October 25th, 1939. Randolph got a bachelor's degree in business administration before following in his father's and grandfather's footsteps and graduating from the University of South Carolina School of Law in 1964. When Buster Sr. retired in 1986, Randolph took over as solicitor and remained in the position until 2006. In 1961, Randolph married his high school sweetheart, Elizabeth Alexander, known as Libby. The couple had four children, Lynn Elizabeth in 1963, Randolph IV, known as Randy, in 1966, Richard Alexander, known as Alex, in 1968, and John Marvin in 1970. Lynn married Alan Goatee in 1988, and the couple had three children, Mills, Trey, and Reeves. Randy married Christy Miley and later welcomed daughters Mary and Caroline. And John married Elizabeth Arnott, in March 2008, and they have since welcomed three children, Randolph V, Mary, and Liza. John graduated from the University of South Carolina with a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. However, unlike most members of his family, John did not become a lawyer. But the child of Randolph and Libby that I would like to focus on is Alex. Now, he prefers to go by Alec, But he's done a lot of questionable things over the years to get what he wants. And on our show, what he wants don't matter to me. (laughs) So we're calling him Alex because it's easier. I like it. I will trip over Alec too many times. It doesn't make sense. So Alex was born May 27th, 1968. Like nearly every member of his family, Alex attended the University of South Carolina where he met Margaret Brantstetter, known as Maggie. Alex graduated in 1990, Maggie graduated the following year, and the couple were married a few years later. They had two sons, Richard Alexander Jr., a.k.a. Buster, in April 1996, and Paul Terry in April 1999. So yes, 
In a family full of men with the same name, they decided to give this child the same nickname as his great-grandfather, which is super helpful to me. Since Buster Sr. died in 1998, I will refer to Alex's oldest son simply as Buster for the sake of consistency. Uh, Buster also attended the University of South Carolina, where he was expelled for plagiarism in the spring of 2019. Allegedly, Alex tried to offer the school $60,000 to readmit Buster. And they said, no, thank you? Uh, I, I believe around when he was offering, things started to go down. And Got it. I, th- I believe he offered before and was turned down, but that actually genuinely surprises me, but good for them. Yeah. Uh, so now we have an idea as to who the Murdochs are. We're going to look at some of the deaths connected to them, starting with Stephen Smith. Around 4 a.m. on July 8th, 2015, a passerby called 911 to say that someone was lying in the middle of Sandy Run Road in Hampton County. According to investigator Todd Proctor, when he arrived on scene, he discovered, quote, a white male lying in the roadway on the center line with head trauma to the right side above his brow. The victim was lying on his back with his legs together bent to the side. There was a large pool of blood surrounding the victim's head. Todd spoke with Hampton County coroner Ernie Washington, who told Todd that it was a homicide Uh, before pointing to a severe head wound that he believed was consistent with a gunshot, including an entry wound, which was written in the initial report. The victim was identified as Stephen Nicholas Smith, who was born January 29, 1996, to Fred Joel and Sandy Smith. Stephen had a twin sister named Stephanie. Both graduated from Wade Hampton High School in 2014 before Stephen started studying nursing at Orangeburg Calhoun Technical Community College. Stephen Smith was just 19 at the time of his death. He was described as a kind, positive, and happy person. Who He was also described as funny, ambitious, and always himself. Shortly after Stephen's body was found, police found Stephen's car abandoned about three miles or 4.8 kilometers away on Bamberg Highway. The car's gas cap had been removed, which is a strange move. If you think the car is out of gas, you go get the gas and bring it back to the car and then remove the gas cap. By abandoning the car with the gas cap open, it makes the scene feel very staged to look like a car ran out of gas. But gas or not, investigators were unable to get the vehicle started. If the car had run out of gas, does that mean that Stephen was headed to a gas station when he was murdered? Not likely. Not only was the gas station in a different direction from where Stephen was found, when his car was searched, police found Stephen's wallet inside. Not to mention the fact that it was about 3, 4 in the morning, so it's unlikely that a gas station in a rural area would be open at that time of day. Since Stephen was found at a location between his vehicle and his father's house, most likely, once the car stopped, Stephen started walking home. His car keys were discovered in his pocket. An autopsy was performed later that day by Dr. Aaron Presnell, 
at the Medical University of South Carolina. She noted that Stephen had extensive skull fractures, a cerebral contusion, a partially dislocated right shoulder, a defensive wound on his hand, and blood in his airways. The brain stem had separated from the spinal cord. Oh my God. However, there was no sign of a bullet, despite the initial belief that Stephen had been shot. Investigator Todd Proctor spoke with the coroner, and in his notes, he wrote, quote, She said it was not a gunshot wound, and no bullet or fragments were found during the x-ray, and that it looked like a bullet wound, in her opinion. Or it didn't look like a bullet wound, in her opinion. And if it wasn't a bullet wound, then the severe injury could have been blunt force trauma. The manner of death was ruled undetermined, and the cause of death was listed as a hit-and-run. The coroner theorized that Stephen's death had to be a hit-and-run simply because he was found in the middle of a road. But we're going to look at why Stephen's death was absolutely not a hit-and-run, keeping in mind that I have no medical expertise whatsoever. According to people who do, and are experts, uh, when a pedestrian is hit by a car... They don't usually keep their shoes on, and they especially don't land as neatly as Stephen was laying. And not only were Stephen's shoes still on his feet, despite being loosely tied, but he looked like he had just been physically placed on the road. His legs were together and bent to the side, which is not usually how a body would look if it had been struck by a vehicle and then just landed awkwardly. Also, aside from the defensive wound on a, on his one arm and some abrasions to his arms, there was no other bruising. There was also no glass fragments found on or around the body, as well as no glass or debris or tire marks found at the scene, which again is typical for impact from a vehicle. Also, Stephen's cell phone was in his pocket and it was undamaged, which feels like more proof that he wasn't struck by a car. But since the case was ruled a hit and run, Stephen's car was never dusted for fingerprints or tested for any DNA, which gives the impression that someone with a lot of power may have asked that case to be ruled a hit and run, allegedly. When Todd Proctor questioned the coroner's ruling, he outright asked her what she thought had caused Stephen's head injury. To quote Todd's report, quote, She told me it was not her job to figure that out. It was mine. I just don't think that's accurate. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that that's... That sounds to me like someone who's like, I'd like to wash my hands of this. That's what that sounds like to me. Yeah, right? It feels feels like an odd thing to say for a coroner. Yeah. You know. So if it wasn't a hit and run, then what happened to Stephen Smith? His sister Stephanie said that on the day he died, Stephen had gone to pick up cigarettes for their dad when he called Stephanie to say his car wouldn't start. When Stephanie arrived at the at the station, store, whatever we're calling it, um, she said it was as that it was like someone had just loosened the car's battery connections. 
So she tightened them and then followed Stephen home to ensure that he got there. Once he got home, Stephen had a shower and left at 6 p.m. He did not tell anyone where he was going. Is it possible that whoever messed with Stephen's car earlier in the day did so again hours later? And maybe the suspect did it to get Stephen alone so he'd be more vulnerable to an attack. But who would want to attack Stephen? Well, his family believes his death was a hate crime because Stephen was gay. There were also rumors that Stephen was in a secret relationship. His family said that he started acting secretive about two weeks before his death. Maybe Stephen started seeing someone who wasn't ready to be out publicly yet. But what does this have to do with the Murdoch family? Well, the rumor goes that Stephen's secret relationship was with Buster Murdoch. The two pr- briefly played baseball together in their childhoods, and they graduated together from Wade Hampton High School in 2014, where Stephen occasionally tutored Buster. The rumor was that Stephen and Buster were a couple and that they planned to come out to Buster's family. Some of Stephen's friends said before his death, Stephen told them that he was, quote, involved romantically with someone from a prominent family who was hiding his sexuality. Is it true? Only Buster knows for sure. But the police have access to Stephen's cell phone and iPad, so I can only hope that at some point the truth will come out. But if Buster knows what happened to Stephen and is staying quiet to protect the killer, or if Buster is outright responsible somehow, I hope the thoughts of Stephen haunt him for the rest of his life. It was just such a brutal and senseless death, and to treat him like he's garbage and just discard him in the middle of nowhere like that is inexcusable. But relationship or not, throughout the investigation, police interviewed friends, family, and potential witnesses, as as well as received numerous tips from the public, and so many of them claimed that Buster Murdoch was involved in Stephen's death. Stephanie heard rumors that her brother ran out of gas and called Buster, who was on his way home from a baseball tournament with friends. Some say there were rumors that Buster and his friends were out smashing mailboxes when they came across Stephen and, quote, seized the opportunity, which is a vile way of putting it. On September 28, 2016, Stephen's mother, Sandy, wrote a four-page letter to the FBI claiming that a witness told a Smith family member that Buster Murdoch beat Stephen to death with a baseball bat. The witness claimed that they personally witnessed the attack and that Buster had threatened them harm if they ever came forward. I find it interesting how many times baseball has come up in all of these different um witness statements yeah and while i know that rumors are not necessarily true despite his name coming up time and time again throughout the investigation buster was never brought in for a single police interview and there are also claims that buster got rid of his vehicle shortly after steven's death allegedly right and sandy run road where steven's body was found is about 11 miles or 17 kilometers west of the Murdoch's Moselle estate. But since we're talking about a small rural town, maybe proximity means nothing suspicious here. So are the Murdoch's only linked to Stephen's death through small town rumors? No. After Stephen's death, the second phone call 
that his family received was from Buster's uncle, Randy Murdoch, who offered to represent them pro bono. Stephen's mother, Sandy, said, quote, We weren't sure how he found out so quickly, even before it was confirmed to be our son. Wow. So how did Randy find out about Stephen's death? And why was he so quick to try and weasel himself into the case? It almost seems like he wanted to get in there early on to find out what the police knew to protect the real killer, allegedly. But once Buster's name came up, the investigation stalled and Stephen's case went cold. I mean, that entire story is just so tragic and uh right? deeply sad deeply sad and what's amazing is is that you'd think is that the bulk of this story but there's just so much more to come so let's take a quick break grab another drink hit the can and we'll be right back with more on the alex murdoch episode of true crime and cocktails This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing Alex Murdoch, part one of our coverage on... The Alex Murdoch case. Murdoch case. Uh, before the break, we were talking about the very tragic death, of course, of uh, Stephen Smith. What do you got for us now? Uh, well, first off, right out the gate, it's going to be thank you for coverage, because that makes us sound like a news show, and I, or sorry, a news, a program. And I, I should have said, back to you, Christy. Well, then I need to hit my papers on the desk, but I instead hit hit the mic and it didn't work out. It's fine. I'm bumbling. So at the beginning of the show, we said that there were five deaths linked to the Murdochs in the span of six years. The first was Stephen Smith in July 2015. The second was Gloria Satterfield. Gloria Harriet Satterfield was born February 8th, 1961 in Hampton, South Carolina. She was the mother of two sons, Brian and Michael, and her husband, David, passed away in May 2013 at the age of 51. Gloria worked as a housekeeper and nanny for the Murdochs for over 20 years. 
Those close to Paul Murdoch said that he considered Gloria to be a second mother to him. He allegedly carried a picture of Gloria in his wallet. And nobody else. Wow. On the morning of February 2nd, 2018, Gloria drove out to the Moselle property to pick up a paycheck from Maggie Murdoch. According to the Murdochs, when Gloria was walking up the eight front steps, she got tripped by the Murdochs' four dogs, fell back, hitting her head on the brick steps before landing on the ground. Allegedly, no one witnessed the accident. Maggie claims that she heard a commotion on the front step, and when she went outside, she found Gloria lying on the steps, bleeding from a head wound. Maggie called 911 to say, quote, My housekeeper has fallen and her head is bleeding. I can't get her up. Paul Murdoch is later heard on that same call. According to Alex, he arrived soon after the accident and said that as Gloria was being lifted into the ambulance, she told Alex that the dogs had tripped her. Gloria was airlifted to a hospital in Charleston where doctors discovered a pulmonary contusion, a subdural hematoma, and multiple rib fractures. While she eventually showed some sign of improvement, she soon contracted pneumonia and had a heart attack. Doctors were able to revive Gloria, but she was left in a coma. Gloria never resumed consciousness and later died from her injuries weeks later on February 26th. Gloria Satterfield was 57 at the time of her death. She was described as outgoing, positive, and loving. Paul Murdoch took Gloria's death particularly hard. According to Gloria's death certificate, her manner of death was ruled natural. So it was not reported to the coroner's office. Therefore, no autopsy was done. There were rumors around town that Maggie or Paul may have pushed Gloria down the stairs, but what would be their motive? While some have said that Gloria knew too much, uh, which could be in reference to many of the shady things that the Murdoch family has allegedly done, but that might also be in reference to Gloria discovering Alex's drug addiction. Here we go. About a month before her death, Gloria allegedly found bags of pills taped under Alex's bed while she was cleaning. According to Paul's girlfriend at the time, Gloria mentioned the pills to Paul. Alex later admitted he had been struggling with addiction to opioids since the early 2000s, following a knee surgery that was meant to fix an old football injury. Since then, Alex has gone to rehab three times, only to relapse after each visit. In 2023, Alex did publicly admit to his addiction, saying that he was taking roughly 60 pills a day, which he said was to make him, quote, more interesting. Interesting. As of late February 2023, Alex said he has been he has been sober for more than 530 days. Alex also admitted to lying to people. Uh, which he said he only did because of his drug addiction. As he put it, quote, as my addiction evolved over time, I would get into these situations or circumstances where I would get paranoid thinking. More drug connections. Side note. (laughs) If I'm going to talk about drugs and Alex Murdoch, I also need to mention his connection 
to Barrett T. Bulwer, who claimed to be a commercial fisherman, but was also a suspected drug smuggler. In the early 80s, a federal drug task force was set up in South Carolina. It was called Operation Jackpot, and between 1983 and 1986, it convicted more than 100 marijuana smugglers. During one of their sting operations in February 1983, they confiscated 17 tons of marijuana from a shrimp boat near Beaufort. Six people were charged, including Barrett and his father. However, things changed when the government's main witness was killed. 33-year-old Franklin C. Branch was struck by a vehicle as he stepped off a sidewalk. Following Franklin's death, charges were dropped against Barrett and his father, and the other four men were convicted. Later on, Alex Murdoch became Barrett's legal representative, and eventually Barrett and Alex became business partners, buying a total of nine properties together. The reason for those particular properties is unknown, as some are just random sections of small islands, but they all seem to be around the Harbor River and have easy access to both roads and waterways, which would be ideal for someone running drugs, not that I'm suggesting they are. I'm just suggesting their property's choices were a little sketchy. In March 2000, Barrett bought the Moselle property for $257,000. In May 2008, he went through a $460,000 foreclosure, and the following March, Barrett transferred the Moselle property to his wife Janine for a dollar. In April 2013, the property was then transferred to Alex Murdoch for $5, who in turn transferred it to his wife Maggie in December 2016, also for $5. And I'm sure that selling or transferring an expensive property for $5 or less is some sort of tax loophole or something. From best I can tell, people often do it to hide the actual price of the property. Again, feels a little sketchy. In July 2018, Barrett granted Alex power of attorney before his death from cancer two months later. Maggie Murdoch remained friends with Barrett's wife until her own death in 2021. In fact, when police found Maggie's cell phone, there was an unread text from Janine Bulwer on it. It's not connected to Maggie's death. I'm just pointing out that the Bulwers and the Murdochs were very intertwined for many, many years. Now, I want to point out, there is currently no proof that the Murdochs were involved in Gloria's death in any way. For now, it's all just speculation. But her death not being reported to the coroner's office and being ruled natural is a red flag that something suspicious happened there. I'm no medical expert, but I don't believe a natural death ever involves broken ribs or a pulmonary contusion. But again, I don't have medical training, just a keen eye for wrongdoing. <laughs> what a nerd. Anyhow, <laughs> it's fine. And speaking of which, at Gloria's funeral, Alex told Gloria's sons that he was going to sue himself for wrongful death to get in an insurance settlement 
since the accident occurred on his property. And since Alex was a lawyer, he told Gloria's children just sit back, wait for the settlement. He'd do all the work on their behalf. So Alex set the Satterfields up with a lawyer uh, who helped settle the lawsuit in December 2018. Gloria's estate was awarded $500,000 for liability and an additional $5,000 for medical costs. But Gloria's family didn't receive any money. Also, it turns out the lawyer that Alex set them up with was Alex's best friend and former college roommate. And if that wasn't bad enough, Alex filed a wrongful death claim with the insurance company Nautilus, who paid out $4.3 million. But instead of doing the right thing and giving Gloria's family the money, Alex just kept it for himself. So gross. Two friends of Alex's even allegedly helped him to commit the fraud by having the insurance money go directly to Alex's bank account and then not telling the Satterfields that the suit had been settled. Alex claims he kept the money to help pay for his drug addiction, which just feels convenient to me at this point. In September 2021, the Satterfields filed a lawsuit against Alex, who finally agreed to pay them in June 2022. Nautilus then sued Alex for insurance fraud, and there are so many other fraud and financial crimes that I could get into now, but I'm saving them for part two of this episode, so... Of course. Stay tuned for that. The idea, though, that the Murdochs could ever be responsible for Gloria's death is enraging to me, not only because it would be the murder of an innocent person and that they got away with it because they thought they were above the law, but also because in Gloria's obituary, after listing her family members, then it says, quote, those she loved as her family... Alec and Maggie Murdoch and their family. Gross. It's it's just sad and shocking how many people around the Murdochs have died with seemingly little to no effect on the Murdochs themselves. Which leads me to the third death linked to the family. On February 23rd, 2019, Alex's youngest son, Paul, wanted to go with his friends to the town's oyster roast. In the afternoon, Paul was seen on surveillance cameras at a convenience store using his brother's brother Buster's ID to buy alcohol. Paul was 19 at the time. Legal age in the United States is 21, I should add. Uh, the friends all agreed to meet at a river house owned by the Murdochs, one that the friends referred to as Murdoch Island. The group included Paul, his girlfriend, Morgan Dowdy, her best friend, Mallory Beach, Mallory's boyfriend, Anthony Cook, Anthony's cousin, Connor Cook, and Connor's girlfriend, Miley Altman. All six were around 19 years old at the time, but underage drinking was not a big concern in the Murdoch house as they allegedly often supplied the kids with alcohol and allowed the kids to drink alcohol in front of them, starting from when these kids were like 14. Morgan even uh, had video of them partying and drinking in front of Paul's parents. They met at the River House around 6.30 p.m., where Paul allegedly funneled six beers before they left for the oyster roast at 7 p.m. Thanks to a stocked cooler on the boat, the kids continued to drink until they left around midnight. Paul wanted to go to a bar, and despite no one else wanting to go, they went anyway. 
mainly because Paul was driving. They arrived at the dock at 12.45 a.m., and Paul and Connor went to Luther's Bar in downtown Beaufort, while the other four friends waited for them outside. Paul used Buster's ID to get in, and Connor later admitted to using a fake ID. They ordered two rounds of shots before returning to the rest of the group just after 1 a.m. At this point, Paul was incredibly intoxicated, and according to his friends, acting rash. The friends suggested that someone else drive or that they take Ubers home, but Paul was adamant he wasn't leaving his boat there and that he was the only one who would drive it. It was later suggested that Paul originally decided to take the boat that night because he knew there would be traffic stops around the oyster roast and he knew the river was the only way to avoid that. The group of six boarded the boat at 1.15 a.m., While out on the water, Paul started acting erratically. He drove the boat in circles, continually increased the speed, and even walked away from the steering wheel at multiple points. The friends again offered to drive, but Paul refused. Paul said things like, quote, This is my fucking boat. You're not driving my boat. And I know this river. Anthony asked Paul to let him out at a nearby dock, but Paul refused. Morgan begged Paul to let someone else drive, and Paul yelled at her, kicked her, and slapped her in the face. Around 2.20 a.m., the boat crashed into the Archer's Creek Bridge. The boat went up onto the rocks as Anthony and Mallory were thrown into the water. Anthony searched the water, but the current was moving too fast, and he couldn't find Mallory. Connor called 911. During the call, Miley and Morgan can be heard screaming in the background for Mallory. It is a heart-wrenching listen. Uh, When first responders arrived, dash cam footage shows Anthony pacing. He's distressed. Paul, smiling, goofing around, happy as a clam, as one may say. Uh, On camera, Anthony very clearly told multiple police officers that Paul was driving the boat. And despite that, and the fact that there were 20 police officers on scene, Paul was not arrested or even questioned by police. With one friend missing and two others injured, of course Paul's only concern was to find a phone so he could call his grandfather. Because even drunk as hell, Paul knew in that moment he needed damage control. Paul, Morgan, Connor, and Miley were all taken to the hospital in Beaufort as crews continued to search for Mallory. Despite having an injured shoulder, Anthony refused to leave the scene without her. Morgan's hand, which had been crushed between the boat and the bridge, required surgery. Connor was treated for a broken jaw, and Miley was unharmed. Paul, who was also unharmed, was goofing around and hitting on the nurses. His behavior became so belligerent that the hospital staff drew Paul's blood several hours after the accident. His blood alcohol content was 0.286, which is more than three times the legal limit for operating a motor vehicle. But those come into play, you know, when you are legally old enough to drink. Great point. So I can't imagine what... Uh, That looks like when you're not. Uh, Despite police being told at the scene that Paul was the driver, he was never given a field sobriety test. If the hospital hadn't done it, 
we wouldn't have any proof of just how intoxicated Paul was. And it would have been just another thing the family tried to sweep under the rug. And again, I remind you, Paul tested three times over the legal limit several hours after the crash. I can't imagine how high it would have been if he had been tested on the scene. Alex Murdoch and his father showed up at the hospital and attempted to speak to each survivor. Not to ask how they were, just to try and convince them to each say they don't remember who was driving the boat. (sighs) Alex called Connor's parents to inform them that Connor was driving the boat, but that they shouldn't worry because, quote, we're going to take care of him. Alex then told Connor, quote, just be quiet. I got you. Don't say anything. (sighs) Paul also told people, other people, that uh, Connor was the driver. A hospital security guard claimed that he overheard Alex on the phone saying, quote, she's gone. Don't worry. And of course, this is hearsay, Your Honor. But the idea of Alex being relieved that Mallory was missing because without a body, his son would be charged with a lesser offense is disgusting. Again, we can't confirm whether Alex said it or not, but if he did say it, I'm horrified on his behalf. At the crash site, Anthony's parents stayed with their son, and police cameras caught a moment where Anthony's mother asked about Mallory's parents. And this is the first moment in the documentary uh, where I started to get really heated. And it happened early on, so it was a spicy watch the whole time. Uh, Anthony's mother tells the officer she has phone numbers for Mallory's parents, but that she didn't want to be the one to make that phone call herself. And that was absolutely her right, because it was not her job to contact anyone's parents. And I get it, because giving someone life-altering bad news is a traumatic experience that stays with you. So she didn't need to make the call. The person who should have made that call was investigating officer Michael Paul Thomas, who first spoke with Anthony's mother. But when she suggested they contact Mallory's parents, Thomas said, quote, Until we know something for sure, probably not a good idea to make that call. We don't want to create a panic, have them out here causing issues. Now, as a mother, <laughs> there it is. I say, fuck you for choosing to be some rich family's bitch instead of doing your fucking job. Mallory's parents deserve to know the situation the moment it happened. They should have been the first phone call, but in the end, not one single member of law enforcement ever contacted Mallory's parents. They had to find out from someone else, which they didn't find out until 4 a.m. But you know who the officers did call? The Murdochs. Phone records show that there were numerous calls between the Murdochs and the police, especially between investigating officer Michael Paul Thomas and his best friend, who just happens to be Alex's brother, John Marvin. And while Mallory's parents had no idea that their daughter was missing, Alex was at the hospital trying to do damage control. And I get wanting to protect your child, but when they do something that harms other people, that's the time for them to learn about consequences. And look, I am no parenting expert because, spoiler alert, no one is! But I also know that Alex's actions on the night of the crash were more about saving his family's reputation than saving his son. 
but to save one, he had to save the other. The idea that Alex allegedly had zero compassion for what the other kids and their parents went through throughout the whole ordeal is enraging. And it enrages me to think that while he was at the hospital doing damage control to save his precious fucking last name, that Mallory's parents had no idea that their lives had changed forever. Fuck the Murdoch's entitlement and their belief that money makes their lives more valuable than anyone else. I want to say I'm going to get less spicy, but I'm not. I wouldn't count on it. Volunteers and investigators spent days searching for Mallory using boats and a helicopter. Anthony went to the crash site every day, hoping for news. And finally, eight days later, on March 3rd, two volunteers found Mallory's body about five miles from the crash site. Her death, her cause of death was ruled blunt force trauma and drowning. Mm. Mallory Beach was just 19 at the time of her death. She was described as happy, fun-loving, and wonderful. She was popular, loved by everyone, and had dreams of becoming an interior designer. In honor of Mallory's love of animals, her family set up Mal's Pals, an organization that is raising money to build a new animal shelter in Hampton County. I also want to point out that Mallory was wearing an Apple Watch at the time of her disappearance. And I'm just surprised that the police were unable to use that to try and locate her. Like a find my iPhone type thing? Yeah. Yeah, because you can absolutely do that with a with a an Apple Watch. It kinda yeah. I mean, assuming it's connected to something, right? Yeah. But Wow. According to the police report, when the boat was searched, there was a lot of blood as well as several boating violations, including no sounding device, no fire extinguisher, no type 4 personal flotation devices, and no navigation lights. The investigating officers first on the scene were members of the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources. According to their website, they are, quote, responsible for enforcement of state and federal laws that govern hunting, recreational and commercial fishing, recreational boating, and other natural resource conservation concerns. They are responsible for investigating boating accidents. So it makes sense they're there. And you would think that that department would have access to several boats. And you would also think that if they have boats, they probably have access to one or multiple trailers to get the boats to and from the water. I think that's a very fair assumption to make. And yet, the day after the accident, one of the officers contacted his best friend, John Marvin Murdoch, a.k.a. Paul's uncle, to bring a trailer to the scene to help remove the boat. Unbelievable. Now, I know that John isn't a lawyer, but I know he has a bachelor's degree in criminal justice, so he knows that it was a wrong move. Anyhow, especially when DNA evidence allegedly disappeared from the boat after the boat left the scene. Funny how that happens. Right? And if that wasn't enraging enough, when Mallory's parents arrived at the scene, they asked to see the boat. But we're told absolutely no one was allowed in that area. But when Alex and Maggie Murdoch arrived on scene moments later, police absolutely let them go down and see the boat. 
And while a lot of police were involved in the investigation, I want to believe that not every single one of them had ties to the Murdochs. I don't know that for sure, but I'm trying to give some of them the benefit of the doubt. But I want to mention two officers specifically, very briefly, one of which I've already mentioned, but I'm going to do it again because fuck that guy. (laughs) Michael Brock was the first lead investigator assigned to the boat accident as a member of the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources. In the span of just 10 years, Brock went from a dispatcher to an investigator. He was described as intelligent and easygoing, and even won an Education Investigations Officer of the Year Award in 2017. Brock was the one who spoke with Anthony right after the crash. Brock's body cam footage shows him talking to Anthony, where Anthony clearly states that Paul was driving the boat and that Mallory's disappearance was Paul's fault. However, the audio clip of that conversation was not entered into evidence, so it's almost like it was erased from the <sighs> section. When asked about his personal ties to the Murdochs, Brock said he wouldn't call them friends because they don't go out to dinner together or vacation together or anything. But Paul's uncle John probably has my cell number. Brock also admitted to being at the Murdoch home multiple times, mostly because Brock's wife, Sarah Walker, was an employee of the Murdoch's law firm. Brock now works for SLED, um, which is the, I believe, South Carolina... Oh, shit. I have it written down somewhere else. It'll come up later. It's another... It's not the natural resources. It's a different investigative thing. Um, From what I can tell... He hasn't seen a consequence or reprimand for not giving Paul a field sobriety test or for uh, not immediately arresting him. (laughs) Because, again, Paul was never arrested at all. In September 2021, SLED announced that it was investigating allegations that police may have been pressured not to charge Paul. Nothing more has been said about that since. Isn't that something? Another officer involved in the case was Michael Paul Thomas, who you may recall was the man I screamed about earlier. He's the one who suggested that calling Mallory's parents to inform them that their daughter was missing would just cause panic, and it wasn't the right time. Allegedly, Thomas pulled a lot of strings to get Paul Murdoch out of trouble in multiple events, prior to 2019, and the fact that Thomas and Alex's brother John spoke on the phone multiple times in the hours following the boat accident, even though there was zero reason for them to speak, unless it was to try and cover up the truth, why speak to the drunk driver's uncle, but not bother to call one of the victim's parents? It makes no sense to me. In 2018, Thomas graduated from the FBI National Academy in Quantico, Virginia, and yet he chose to stay as a lieutenant in the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources. And while it's still an impressive position, I find it interesting he never outright joined the FBI. It could almost make a suspicious person believe he might have been persuaded to remain in his current position to help a prominent and powerful family whenever needed, allegedly. A month after the crash, Mallory's family filed a wrongful death suit against the Murdochs. The suit was settled in early 2023 for an undisclosed amount. Connor's family also filed a lawsuit claiming that Alex tried to protect Paul by suggesting that Connor's family hire a lawyer, Corey Fleming, who the Cooks later learned was not only Alex's friend from college, he was also the godfather of Alex's son, Buster. Wow. 
In 2021, Connor's family filed another suit alleging that Alex tried to frame Connor for the accident. Morgan also filed a lawsuit for compensation for the injuries that she incurred to her hand. Nearly two months after the crash, Paul Murdoch was indicted and charged with three felony counts, including driving under the influence resulting in death and two charges of boating under the influence with great bodily harm. Paul pleaded not guilty and was released on a $50,000 bond. He was never put in jail, never handcuffed, and his mugshot was just a quick shot taken in the hallway of the courthouse. The prosecution requested that Paul wear an alcohol monitor. The judge denied the request. After the hearing, Paul moved into a cabin on the Murdoch's Moselle property, where he continued to party and drink and live his life as though nothing had happened. And some may argue that he drank to try and forget the accident that happened, but still. Yeah. Again, as a mother, I absolutely understand wanting to protect your children, but when their behavior leads to the injury or even death of another person, it is time for that child to face consequences. It's incredibly dangerous to let a child have a complete disregard for human life. Again, I'm no expert because no one is. Parents are all just out here winging it and doing our best. But to prevent your child from experiencing the consequences to their actions sets up a terrible precedence and turns them into shitty entitled adults. I've said what I've said. (laughs) Now, I know the Murdochs continued to push the narrative that Paul was not driving the boat. But it's been proven that he absolutely was driving the boat. Not only did the four other crash survivors all claim that Paul was driving, but it was also proven through accident reconstruction. A biomedic oh, sorry, a biomechanical engineer used the damage to the boat as well as the injuries that all six passengers incurred and was able to determine where all six were sitting at the time of the accident. Anthony and Mallory were together at the back of the boat. When the boat hit the bridge, they were both thrown into the water. Mallory had blunt force trauma, possibly from hitting her head on the bridge. She, of course, later drowned. Miley and Morgan were sitting together at the front of the boat, Morgan was thrown overboard and her hand was crushed between the boat and the bridge. Miley had her feet up at the time of the crash and managed to be mostly unharmed. So that leaves us just Connor and Paul in the middle of the boat where the steering wheel is. Based on his injuries, Connor was thrown into the center console, breaking the three rod holders on the right side. The right side of the windshield was also cracked where Connor connected to it, and the bar that Connor was holding onto was bent. Connor suffered a fracture and laceration to his jaw, so based on Connor's injuries and on the damage to the boat, Connor couldn't have been driving. So that just leaves Paul, who of course would want to do everything to deny driving, as it would help him deny responsibility which seems to be a Murdoch family trait, allegedly. 
But Paul was absolutely driving that boat, and he deserved to be arrested the moment the police realized it. And as we know from the beginning of this show, Paul was brutally murdered before he was able to stand trial for the accident. After his death, the charges against Paul were dropped as a formality. And with multiple families feeling like Paul was given special treatment throughout the investigation, it led to the belief that if a trial had happened, Paul had a good chance of being acquitted. And because of that, Alex Murdoch publicly stated he believed someone linked to that boat accident murdered Paul and Maggie out of revenge. Alex also claims that Paul had been receiving threats leading up to his death. And if these alleged threats really did happen, is it possible that they weren't linked to the crash, but rather to Paul's violent behavior? Now, before anyone wants to come for me, yes, I know Paul is a victim in this story. He did not deserve to die, especially not in the brutal way that he did. With that being said, I don't believe a person's death completely erases all of the negative things that they've ever done. Nope. So saying that Paul didn't deserve to die and saying he had a history of alcohol abuse and violence towards women can coexist. According to the Murdoch's housekeeper, Gloria Satterfield, Paul would allegedly kill small animals and had a disregard for authority. According to Paul's ex-girlfriend, Morgan Doughty, Paul drank excessively and became reckless to the point where he'd turn into another person. His friends referred to this alter ego as Timmy. Paul and Morgan started dating during their junior year of high school. Morgan said Paul became verbally and physically abusive towards her multiple times, mostly while intoxicated. Morgan claims Paul had punched, slapped, kicked, and spit at her at various times, including after Buster's graduation party, where Paul grabbed Morgan by the throat. To quote Morgan, quote, I think our relationship is just something that I really clung to just because when it was good, it was really good. But when it was bad, it was really bad. After a Christmas party in 2017, Paul and Morgan got into an accident after Paul was intoxicated enough that he lost control of the vehicle they were in. The truck ended up in a ditch, so Morgan called 911 because that's what you do when you get into an accident. Paul's first phone call was to his grandfather, who in turn then called Alex, and both were on the scene before the police. According to Morgan, while Alex moved the guns and beer cans from Paul's vehicle to his own, Paul's grandfather chastised Morgan for calling 911 and scolded her for possibly getting Paul into trouble. To shame a teenage girl for calling 911 after a car accident because it might get the driver, who was allegedly drunk at the time, in trouble is wild. She did the right thing, trying to cover it up was the wrong move, but apparently I have more of a conscience than some. But since I mentioned that Alex's father, Randolph, was at the scene of the accident, I also want to mention that, sadly, he died from cancer at the age of 81 on June 10th, 2021, which was just three days after Maggie and Paul were murdered, which brings us back to the beginning of our episode. On June 7th, 2021, Alex Murdoch called 911 
to claim that he had just arrived home and discovered the bodies of his wife and son. Paul was shot once in the chest and again in the head and neck with a shotgun at close range. He was barely recognizable. Maggie was shot multiple times in the chest and back. It appears she was running away from someone when she was first shot, and once she hit the ground, the killer shot her multiple times at close range. Investigators believe that Maggie may have witnessed Paul's murder and that she was killed because of it, which would mean that Paul potentially was the intended target. Two separate guns were used during the attack, an AR-style rifle and shotgun. Based on the shell casings found at the scene, it was determined that the Murdochs owned the same type of rifle as well as a shotgun. Neither were turned over to the police, and as of May 2023, Neither weapon has ever been located. The coroner estimated their time of death to be around 9 p.m. Alex initially said he left shortly after 8 p.m. and didn't return home until 10.06 when he discovered the bodies. After the murders took place, the local police didn't hold any press conferences or release any potential suspect description or photo. Police did, however, announce the public was in no danger, which means they immediately believed this was an isolated incident and the motive was personal. The investigation was taken over by the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, also known as SLED. There we go. I knew it was there somewhere. Uh, due to the Murdoch's family Murdoch family's close ties with law enforcement. No suspects were initially named, although Mallory Beach's boyfriend, Anthony Cook, was briefly considered a suspect, as well as Mallory Beach's father, who was questioned. Alex offered a $100,000 reward for any information that would lead to an arrest and a conviction in the case. His brothers, John and Randy, gave interviews claiming Paul had been receiving threats in the months leading up to his murder, but they were unaware if the family had any enemies. And if they truly believe that, they are naive. <laughs> when locals get asked about the Murdoch family, many of them describe the Murdochs like the mafia, a family you don't want to mess with. So for a family that has allegedly flaunted their power and wealth over a county for over a century, of course they'd make a few enemies along the way, especially when so many family members are lawyers. And it's just sad to see so much senseless death in and around this family, and most seemingly just to save the reputation of some spoiled rich people. But just when you think we're done talking about this case, we're far from it. There was so much that I had to save for the second episode, including updates on Stephen's and Gloria's cases and, of course, the investigation into Maggie and Paul's murders and the scandalous trial that followed. Reporting for this first half of the case, it's your bitch, Christy. Thanks, Christy. We really appreciate your work on this case. As for us, let's take another break. Let's hit the can. Let's grab another drink. And we will be back to discuss Alex Murdoch Part 1 on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. 
Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing the Alex Murdoch case and where to begin. My God. Um, Just so many things. Just so many things. It's so interesting because I do feel, I know I already referenced it, which is funny, but in some ways I do feel a sort of parallel between this and the Army Hammer case in terms of the familial history. And the fact that they were both families that were extremely wealthy. Now, again, in the Army Hammer case, we know that that was exaggerated by many in many different ways and uh, did not necessarily turn out that way. Where I feel like the Murdochs, well, we know the Murdochs were in money because Alex Murdoch was stealing it. So there was at least some amount of money there, uh, even, you know, towards the end. But um, yeah, I just that just kept popping up for me the whole time. The fact that this was probably one of the few times since if maybe the next time since we've had to actually create a family tree to keep track of all of the family members. And then of course, all of the kinds of dysfunctions that we're seeing that just, again, that struck, struck me throughout this. Um, you know, you're gonna love this. Yeah. This is a question about the family tree. Of course. This is not about you. This is a question about them. Oh, did I cock it up? Nope. Yep. So Randolph senior Randolph the second, Randolph yep. the third. Then there's no Randolph. Uh, and then there's Randolph. Well, Rand- Randy is technically Randolph. The That's third. where it is. I was like, so here's, sorry. here's, no, no, no. I only had so much space. No, no, no. Here's what it was is, and this is a real question though. I was like, but if they skipped a generation, is, would the, would, cause I, I mean, it's such a like royalty yeah. thing to do. Would you skip that one? If there was a generation where there was no family name, which would have been the fourth, but then the grand, right. the next generation they wanted to use the name, would you make that one the fourth or would you make it the fifth because it was skipping a generation? Do you see what I'm saying? I see what you're saying. I assume they would make it the fourth if he was the fourth Randolph in the family. Right. Well, this is my fault because I didn't read and didn't <laughs> synthesize in, the information. In your, in your defense, for the rest of them, I for most of them, I put like what their actual name was. But then I started running out of room and oh, there I was to too much it, to write. I had to make it multiple times <laughs> <laughs> because it, because, of course, you can't just start at the top and do directly down because some have more. Kids oh, yeah. 
like see i i started too far to one side and then tried going this way and then i ran out of room it became oh i was on three pages once for for the army hammer one i was like this is impossible to navigate i yeah i had to do mine at least three or four times so i get it yeah i get it um all right so steven uh steven smith uh I mean, again, it's just so tragic. And it's so tragic, too, because it's a little bit of a mystery. its I don't think it's a complete mystery because it feels like there's so much going on there that doesn't right. feel, yeah, uh, above board. But it's also just like finding a body in the middle of the road, in the middle of the country, in the middle of the night is just, it's a lot. Um now, I think because I did watch uh, some documentaries about this, I think his mother said also that he had a dream to be a doctor and, and go to developing countries to offer his services. I don't know if you'd seen that, but that I hadn't. But yeah, he was in nursing school. So it makes. sense. Yeah, it was really quite lovely. Again, that that's the kind of soul we're talking about here, you know, which is just so tragic. Um, the fact that they would say, well, the manner of death has to be a hit and run because he was found in the road. What are we doing, guys? What are we doing? And that to me sounds like because we know how powerful that family is, they really think they're above the law because, by the way, they almost are. At that point? At yeah. that point, they they pretty much were. Because, again, it's absolute insanity to me. That that's what you could give as the cause of death when, again, by the way, the shoes alone. I know. Is, again, it's like, well, that's kind of science. Like, it's like physics happens every time someone's hit by a car. But in this case, it didn't. And the statement of the coroner, too, where it's like, that it's not my job to determine is chilling to me. Because that, to me, sounds like, well, we all know that that's kind of not true. And it feels to me like she's like, I don't want a part of this. That's what that feels like to me. I did read, whether it's true or not, uh, that she was let go. She should have been. Month, a month or so after that. She should have been. She, of course, of course, got a job somewhere else, though. Well... But Let this be, again, a reminder that there is a shortage of medical examiners in this country. And we haven't talked about this on the show for a while. So if you're new we to haven't. us, just know that if you are a young person and you are thinking that maybe medical examining could be for you and you go to school and you become a medical examiner, we will attend the graduation of your college. Uh, we have said this now for a very long time on this show because there is a absolute, complete Lack of medical examiners in the United States. Tough job. Not for everybody. We're not suggesting you go into it unless it's something you really are passionate about. But again, that offers on the table from us always. Um, okay, something I wanted to say about Gloria. So Gloria, again, it was allegedly this, this fall being tripped up by the dogs. We know that she went to the hospital, she had a heart attack, she developed pneumonia, she went into a coma, she died weeks later. Here's the one thing I can speak to. Now, I don't have a ton of experience with this, but I have a little bit with cause of deaths and I or manner of deaths on death certificates. There have been times that unfortunately I have known people that have passed and the manner of death can be described as 
what the final thing was that took the person. So as far as I, and again, I am not an expert. So if I'm incorrect, or if this is again, by region only, I apologize in advance. But I do know that in some places, the cause of death. So for example, if somebody was dying of cancer, and they were in the hospital, and they got an upper respiratory infection that led to pneumonia, and they died, then the cause of death or the manner of death would be listed as uh, pneumonia and a virus. So the person would never have been there had they not been battling cancer. And one could, of course, argue, well, the cancer could have their immune system low. Where are they in chemo? All kinds of, you know. But because what specifically and acutely took them was pneumonia and a virus, that would be what would be listed on the death certificate. And the reason why I bring that up is because we know that Gloria had a heart attack, had pneumonia, was in a coma. And none of those are, are natural. I mean, maybe the heart attack maybe could be considered natural causes, but pneumonia is not. And again, or or again, from my, sadly, my experience, pneumonia would be listed as a cause of death or a manner of death. It would not be listed as natural. As far as I, it has been communicated to me. Sure. So the fact, again, that to me is a, is a, is a trip up. And I understand that they're saying that these are whatever natural causes, et cetera. So no autopsy was done. But when we know there was an accident, when we know that this is, you know what I'm saying? It just feels like it's a gray area because I understand that it's like, well, it was pneumonia, so we don't need to look into it. But I don't, but, but again, if it was cancer getting you into the hospital, that's one thing. If it's an accident getting you into a hospital, I don't know about that. I think that, and again, I'm not educated and I am not in this world um, other than doing this show. But you know what I'm saying? I feel like that's a gray area. And if that's, if it's not common practice, that's insane to me. And as you know, I've talked about it on this show so many times. I think that any, any death should be treated the same in terms of if it appears to be a suicide versus a murder we should be treating the crime scene the same way, et cetera. To me, if you come into the hospital having had an accident where you fell and had blunt force trauma to your head that then caused all of these other things to happen, I understand that it may have been the pneumonia or et cetera that ultimately took her life in the end. But when you look at the bigger picture to me, I think that warrants an autopsy. And again, some people may be trained for this and tell me that I'm wrong, But again, to me, that's the difference between going in for cancer and going in for an accident. I think an accident, it warrants it. And I I would be, again, I offer that. I offer that. Um, And then especially considering when we look at the fact that Alex Murdoch kept millions of dollars from her family. And by the way, being a greedy, um, disgusting human does not mean you're a murderer. We know that to be true. Yep. But I just would love to know what all of the people involved in this would think when they happily wrote off Gloria's death as natural causes, no need for an autopsy, and then however long later, we come to find out that he has not only kept 
the 500 plus K, but then an additional four plus million dollars. Because if you are a human being and you were one of the people that were like, there's no need to do this autopsy. And then you heard that. I really hope it haunts you till the day you die. Because if ever, if ever there was motive, we found it. Yep. That's a lot of fucking money. And we know having done this show long enough, people kill for less. Oh, yeah. People willingly kill for so little. This, to me, is is one of the greatest injustices. And as we know, one of my biggest pet peeves in life is injustice. And it just feels, again, I just hope it haunts everybody involved. Every one of them. Because that is absolute, to me, proof that there was, if nothing else, motive, which means there should have been an autopsy. Yes. Period. To me, again, an accident where there was no witnesses, common sense would say, let's run the autopsy. Yep. Blunt force trauma to the head. Not many people fall and hit their heads that bad. Sure, it can happen, but with no witnesses, no one around. Mm -hmm. But again, we know there was a lot of power involved. Um speculating this is all a speculation obviously of course now listen people are going to come for me with what i'm about to say and i'm going to preface it by saying i am in no way judging any of those kids who got on that boat with paul that night it is not a judgment i am not victim shaming in any way but my hope for our younger listeners is that you hear this story and look, we've been young. I was young. I know what it feels like in those moments when someone is really pressuring you to do something that your gut is telling you is not a great idea. And my hope would be that for young people hearing this story, if you ever find yourself in any situation where your gut is telling you, I don't think this is a good idea, listen to your gut. Listen to it. Your gut is never wrong. And I promise you, as mad as you think your parents may be for calling them at an ungodly hour, you drunk as a skunk, it is, it is always never going to be as bad as what the outcome of what you inherently know is not a good idea would be. And I'm not a parent, but I think I can speak for parents when I say that any parent would rather you make that phone call then put yourself into any situation that you inherently feel is probably not a good idea. Again, let this, let this horrific death be, if nothing else, a, a learning opportunity and a reminder that it's never worth it. And I'm saying this as someone who has put myself into terrible positions like that in my youth. We all have. Sure. But, we're, but let us learn from us. Learn from us. Learn from these stories. Please, please, please. It's never worth it. Even in the moment, if it feels like, oh, I promise you, make the call. Call your parent. Get, get your Uber. Do what you got to do. If you feel like this is not safe, as, as terrible as it may be, and I understand how overwhelming other kids can be, um, it's just never worth it. It's never worth it. What a terrible, horrific, for all of them, for all of them, 
not not just um not just Mallory whose whose death again was extremely horrific and awful but the others that have to live with it that is a oh. massive trauma what an insane traumatizing situation not only in what you physically went through but the fact that you these all of these people lost this friend that was so close to them yeah it is ruined it has not only taken a life but it has ruined so many lives so many oh, lives every single kid on that boat everyone yep again Please hear my very good intentioned words, which are just always trust your gut in any situation, big or small. It will never lead you astray. I promise. And that's something I think that only age can teach you. <laughs> yeah. It's nice you know? that we've gotten to a point of like, listen to your elders. Yeah. Hey, us. We've, we've become the elders. We were 20 when we were yelling at girls lined up to get into concerts with no coats on in the winter saying, where's your coats? So we've we've always come about this honestly, I think, is, the, is part we, of it. Oh, we did in that moment. We were like, did we just? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, boy. Now, this Michael Paul Thomas character. Yeah. Um, you were talking about the fact that it was Paul's uncle that got called to move that boat. Yeah. Uh, then you were talking about how he, of course, was saying, let's not call Mallory's parents yet until we know something, which I completely agree with you is insanity. But hear me out for a second. Yeah. I wonder what the protocol is in that situation. My perception would be that the protocol would be to call the family immediately. Your daughter's been involved in an accident and sure. is missing. That would be my gut instinct as to what protocol is. But let's just yeah. say for a second, for for the sake of this argument, that the protocol is, well, let's let's wait and see if we find her in the next hour or whatever before we alert the parents. Let's say, I don't believe, I don't know if that's true. I don't believe that to be true, but let's say that it is. Do you know what I can tell you isn't protocol? Calling family members of the drunk driver. That, I promise you, multiple phone calls to his uncle is not protocol. And by the way, sir, if you're saying, let's not alarm anyone yet, wouldn't it be, quote, alarming to the family of the drunk driver to call their parents? Or in this case, randomly, uncle? That's that's the kicker for me. It was not even contacting the like his parents. He contacted the uncle, which is like, so you weren't calling about that kid in particular. You were like, "Hey, I'm waking you up in the middle of the night because I need to know how to handle this." Yes. And the fact that it was multiple phone calls too, like all of it is so dark to me. Yep. Because if nothing else, spoiler alert, cell phone records always exist. Um, yep. Unless you're calling from some kind of burner phone. Uh, but you know what I mean? Like, like we know now, you know, you, again, as you said, it's like, well, they, they pulled the records and there was multiple phone calls between this police officer and the uncle of the drunk driver. It's not great. No. Because it's one Why of those things, it's one of those things again where it's like, 
let's say for some reason it was innocent. You just screwed yourself, dude. This this cop, it's like you I guess for me, what it always comes down to for me is that it's like, even if you're gross, wouldn't you be gross enough to want to protect yourself in the grand scheme of paper trails and, you know, possible trials and all of the above? Like, it's brazen to me that he thought, ah, I'll make multiple phone calls to him and what's the big deal? It just, again, it feels, it feels, we're speculating, but it feels like there's a real feeling of being above the law. That's that's kind of splintering out now, right? Oh, yeah. It feels very like, well, it doesn't matter. I need to do this. Any consequence, they'll make this go away is how it feels. Right. I just, there is never an excuse that will make it okay that he decided the uncle of a child, not even the, if the uncle was raising him, fine. But the uncle is not raising him. He was being raised by his parents. So to tell somebody outside of that before you ever told the parents of the missing kid, I mean, it's so gross to me that he knew before they did. And again. And that the cops never turned around and then called to be like, oh, yeah, we didn't call you our bad, by the way. Yeah, the like, fact they that, never contacted the them. fact that they never contacted her parents is absolutely obscene. It's wild. And again, what do you guys what are you guys thinking? Because I always try and think about like what's the conniving other side psychology? Where you would sure. think that it was like, well, if I'm gonna be calling this uncle guy, I should probably call that family too to not make it look obvious. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, it just feels again, like, and what difference would it have made? I love that it was like, we don't want them coming down here to make things worse. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And again, the big thing being ultimately, regardless of what is is protocol or isn't protocol, I guarantee you if it was Michael Paul Thomas's child who had been thrown from that boat in a drunk driving accident, he probably would have gotten the wanted to get that call himself. Just going to put that out there. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um what I loved was there the as a mother count is at 2. It's been a while. <laughs> and that was nice. That was hey. nice. I can rip down the paper of how many episodes exactly. since I've mentioned it. Which I love. Yeah. I love. Um, I've got to look into one of those. We really do. We really do. I think, um, you know, I think it's interesting because I think it's really important that you mentioned, you know, that we we have to talk about Paul's behavior while he was alive in terms of of so much of this case and and – uh, is specifically Mallory's death, in my opinion, and that whole night and what sure. it meant. Um, and look, there are plenty of people who are unfortunately wildly abusive. And when they die, it's still tragic that they die, especially in a murder situation. My God, of oh, course. Yeah. Like, in no way does, is it, you know, it's such a slippery slope because I think it's so easy to speak about this in ways that are glib. And and I, I appreciate the way that you approached it because you didn't. And I agree with you, obviously, uh, wholeheartedly. 
But I do think that it's important context when we're talking about that night in question. The fact that his friends had this cutesy nickname for him when he would get drunk and aggressive. It's adding context to why they all got on that boat that night. That clearly Paul was this kind of large personality. Um, You know, I think it really just speaks to the whole thing. And obviously, again, I mean, my heart broke about, you know, the quote that Morgan was giving about when it was bad, it was so bad. But when it was good, it was so good because because I've lived that, too. And anyone who's been, unfortunately, in a, in an abusive relationship uh, can relate to that. And I think that that's really real. And and uh, I really commend her for for speaking out about that in an honest way, because it's so true. It's such a true part of what those dynamics can be and how powerful those dynamics can be, um, yeah. which is important to remember. The whole scenario about them getting into that car wreck and then him calling his dad and grandpa and then them shaming her, shaming Morgan for calling 911, it just paints such a picture. And she has no reason to lie. She has no reason to make up any of this. And I feel like, too with the interviews that I've watched with her too, again, like I, I just think she's such a, um, articulate and, and brave person for speaking about this in the ways that she has, especially when, by the way, this is still an insanely powerful family. Like up until very recently where Alex has been brought to justice, you know, spoiler alert, if you don't know the case, well, we'll see. Sure. It's, it's coming in the next episode, but you know what I mean? Um, as, as someone who was willing to speak out about this over the over the past years, I mean, that takes a lot of bravery and uh, to be so honest about all of it and, and and her role in it. And again, just painting the picture of what it seems was the dynamic within that Murdoch family, uh, certainly for Paul, um, getting into trouble and then, you know, calling his dad and grandpa, which again is the same thing he did the night of the, the boat accident. Again, it just paints a very important picture in the grand scheme of this case, which, by the way, we're we're not all the way through. There's another episode coming because there's so much information. There's just so much yeah. information in this case. Um, so, I mean, listen, if you're if you're if you're thinking, oh, she missed something. We, she didn't talk about something. There's, you know, something missing. Just hold it. Hold hold your your thoughts and your feelings and your feedback because there is an entire another episode of this case coming where I'm fairly certain uh, Christy Oxborough never lets us down. Hasn't happened once. And so I'm fairly certain she's going to bring anything uh, that may seem to be missing in that episode. So, wowzer. I mean, so much to talk about. So much more to come. I uh, It's a confounding one. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, all five deaths involved in this, all the the main five. I mean, I know other people uh, died throughout this, but the five specific deaths were all just so incredibly tragic. Yeah. And I know I didn't uh, – I made sure to say that the, the first three that I talked about were very tragic, and I didn't talk a lot about Maggie and Paul's death – that is the main focus yes. of the second episode, so it will be coming. But yes, their deaths as well were tragic and senseless, and it's just 
None of these people should be dead. No. None of them. No. No, it's, it's, yeah. It's miraculous the kind of scope um, and connection that this family has to so much tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, Christy Oxborough, amazing work. Fantastic as always. We so look forward to the dramatic conclusion to the Alex Murdoch case coming next week mm-hmm. on True Crime and Cocktails. But until then, if you haven't already, give us a follow on the socials on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails, on Twitter at Not Detectives. Of course, if you're looking for some bonus content, some additional episodes of the show, go over to patreon.com slash True Crime and Cocktails to learn more about our subscription-based service over there. And of course, the only place for official True Crime and Cocktails merch is truecrewmerch.com. So check that out as well if you're interested. Normally, I would throw to you right now to tell us about next week's episode, but we've been saying it repeatedly. So on the (laughs) next True Crime and Cocktails, Alex Murdoch, part two. There, we got got that out of the way, officially and unofficially. Uh, But the one thing I do have to throw to you is Christy Oxborough, would you like to say goodnight to the people? Good night, Tony Hale. Good night, nude Brad Pitt. (laughs) Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.